Good morning. Good morning. And let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten us. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray that uh, we will grow closer to you, understand your kingdom and your methods more fully, uh, be more uh, capable of taking your end-time message to the world, and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson uh, four in the uh, quarterly, uh, the la- in the last days, uh, the message of Hebrews, and the title is Jesus, Our Faithful Brother. And the first two paragraphs is focusing on Jesus as kinsman redeemer. And the first two paragraphs in Sunday's lesson uh, reads, The law of Moses stipulated that when a person was so, uh, so poor that he had to sell his property or even himself in order to survive, he would receive that property or his liberty back every 50 years on the Jubilee. The Jubilee year was a grand Sabbath year in which debts were forgiven, properties were reclaimed, and liberty was proclaimed to the captives. Fifty years was a long time to wait, however. That's why the law, Moses, also stipulated that the nearest relative could pay the part that was still owed and thus ransom his relative much sooner. So, are they suggesting then that Jesus has ransomed us for sin? I think that's what they're trying to say. I think that's, and, and of course, he, we believe that. He has come, and he's come to ransom us. The Bible uses that metaphor. But what does it actually mean, ransom us from sin? What does that mean? Did he have to pay a price to Satan? To, uh, I mean, if you use the metaphor, we're enslaved to somebody, and you have to pay that person in order to get the slave free. That's what was happening in Israel. Uh, uh, did, we have to pay, did Jesus have to pay a price to Satan to free us from, from, from sin? He says, pay the part that was still owed. Pay the part that was still owed, which is a death penalty. So he had to come pay that death penalty. To, to Satan? Uh, or did he have to pay it to God to purchase the right to buy us back? God had to have the death penalty so, so that he could give us give the legal right to purchase us. What's required to actually deliver us from sin? Healing. Healing. Well said. Well said. Sin has to be removed from the sinner. That's what has to happen. Is sin physical? Molecular? Biological? Can we can we like find a a, a a virion that we can if we can remove that then we're all going to be sin free? Sin is according to scripture transgression of the and the question is what law? That's exactly right. What law? Uh, if we have the design law view, lies believed break the circle of love and trust resulting in fear and selfishness. Adam and Eve believed the lies. They changed themselves. They became filled with fear and selfishness. Thus, every human being sent them is born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51.5, with a condition they didn't choose, terminal condition, that without remedy results in death. So in order to be saved, that condition has to be addressed or resolved. So what needs, what's needed when you understand lies, believe, break the circle of love and trust and results in this condition, what's needed is truth to destroy the lies and win to trust and a sinless human nature, a new human character. We become, through trust, partakers of the divine age. No longer I live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. So, to, so if you understand the price that was necessary, truth to destroy lies, and a new sinless human nature character, in order to heal and fix us, 
Who receives those? We do. So who, to whom is the price then paid? To us. Just like a person dying of renal failure and you donate a kidney, you're not paying a price to the hospital or the insurance company or the health care administration. You're paying that price to the person. You're giving them your kidney. Christ gave us his life so that we could be partakers of his life. Yeah, that's what happened. So this is design law. This is reality. That We are sick and we need actual healing. There's nothing legal going on in this process. Third paragraph, let's, the very next paragraph reads, the nearest relative also was the one who guaranteed that justice was done in the case of a murder. He was the avenger of the blood who would pursue the murderer of his close relative and punish him. Are they saying that if we refuse to let Jesus heal us, that he will then take the role of avenger and kill us? So that just punishment is meted out? Or, or maybe they're saying that, that Jesus will use his power to punish, torment, and kill Satan and anybody who abuses us or mistreats us. That he took the punishment from his father at the cross, and therefore he doesn't have to punish the rest of us, but for those who won't ta- allow him to substitute his punishment for us, then he will punish all the abusers in the end. This is a very common theory, because we, we and many others have been so effective in eviscerating the fraudulentness of the penal substitutionary atonement model with an angry, wrathful God who's lashing out and a son who's pleading with them. New theories of penal substitution are coming out now, which are endorsing the idea that God is not wrathful and he's not angry and he's not lashing out emotionally. He's not lashing out with anger. No, no. No, he's not. In fact, they talk about how the, the Godhead is united together and that God did not lash out at his son in anger or wrath. He punished him for justice sake. Without wrath, dispassionately, not with anger, in fact with love, but the law required him to kill his son for us. Still have God as the executioner, still have a God who is the source of death, still have a God who must use his power to inflict pain and death, but he does it now dispassionately, not wrathfully. This is the new theory that is being put forth. I think it was just put forth recently at the Adventist Theological Society. And this is what happens when you uh, 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 continue to operate on the false platform, God's law functions like human law. They're doing it as a, as a reaction to feminist theology. And feminist theology uh, uh, looks at the cross as a justification for abusing the disempowered, uh, that Christ uh, did not uh, stop abuse, and, and that we have divine child abuse going on with a father abusing a son angry in anger and wrath. And, and the historic ways that that is presented has led to this. And so feminist theology comes back and rejects the idea of the cross necessary for salvation. And so this is now going, no, he's not wrathful, he's not angry. The Trinitarian view, they're all united. It was just for justice sake. But this is the kind of argument you get into when you don't understand design law, when you don't understand reality, when you don't understand there's actually a condition that needs healing. Yes? Am I correct in remembering there were multiple cities of refuge that they left out in this paragraph? Yeah, there are cities of refuge that someone could run to, um, to escape the avenging... Yeah, yeah. So we could run to Jesus to escape the avenging Father. Yes? 
the first slide and what you read it says according to the law of Moses. Hmm. The law of Moses was something that was added that God had to add to the Ten Commandments because the principles of the Ten Commandments weren't understood. The Ten Commandments themselves were added because man didn't retain the knowledge of God. That's right. And his law. That's right. So this argument that this is how things operate is kind of kind of moot. Yeah. So the key to understanding Scripture, one of the one of the core foundational keys, is understanding God's law. Understanding God's law. This is how we we understand it. Uh, there, uh, justice under imposed law requires imposition or infliction of punishment. That's what it requires. If there is no infliction of punishment, then there is no accountability under an imposed law system. Under design law, all this confusion that I just went between feminist and penal substitution theology, it all evaporates because we, ha- we understand immediately we have a terminal condition. Adam and Eve changed their very state of being. They have a condition without intervention results in death. We're all born with that terminal condition. God is intervening to cure the condition. Another key to understanding Scripture, in addition to understanding the law as design law, is Jesus. Jesus is a key. Do we understand Jesus and his ministry and what he did through the Old Testament? We look at the Old Testament to explain Jesus. Or does Jesus become the key that we understand the Old Testament through? Which way do we look? Jesus is the lens. He's the defining instrument. He is the touchstone. He's the litmus test. Or Jesus must conform himself to what we understand of the Old Testament. Do we find as we look to Jesus that he inflicted punishment upon anyone for justice' sake. Do we find... uh, And you say, why not? Was he not confronted with injustices? Did he not care for people? Was he not interested in protecting people from being hurt by others? Why didn't he seek to hold accountable and inflict punishment upon people? Did Jesus teach anything about justice? Yes, he did. What is justice? What does it actually mean? What's the word justice mean? Say that again. Set right. Set right. Okay. Is it more than it's also doing right? Doing what's right? Doing what's just? Justice, the right thing? Okay. Act justly to do the right thing. This is what justice is. So, did you, so as we look at that, how do we determine then? What is actually the right or just thing to do? What's the basis for our understanding? Do you notice in human civilizations, in human societies, what's right and just is constantly in flux? Constantly in flux. How come it's always constantly in flux? How come it's just to drive 160 miles an hour in Germany on the Autobahn? But it's not okay here in Collegedale. Even on the interstate in, in Ottawa. It depends on the law. That's exactly right. Different laws, different, different standard of what's just or right. So we determine justice by understanding the law, which goes back immediately then to the whole question in the great controversy that began in heaven. 
And I love this quotation out of uh, The Great Controversy, the book, The Great Controversy, page 582. I'm trying to memorize this one. I don't have this one memorized yet, but but I need to memorize this one. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between religion of the Bible and religion of fable and tradition. See, God is the God of reality. He is the creator. It's one of the things that always come back in the scripture. He cre- he's creator. He builds reality. His laws are the laws upon which reality operate. Uh, they're the foundation of reality. And they never change. And they never change. Satan is the father of lies, of made-up things, of ideas that are not based in truth or founded upon truth, not reality, that are fantasy, including the fantasy that God's law is a system of imposed rules that requires God to punish sinners. That's a fantasy. It's not reality. Justice is doing what is right or just. Did Jesus teach justice? Did he reveal justice? Where do we find Jesus teaching justice? How about this? Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Is Jesus teaching justice here? Can the justice that is taught in these verses be accomplished through rule-keeping? What is necessary to accomplish the justice that Jesus describes here? Love. Love. Love where? A change of heart. A change of heart. Not change, not merely conforming behavior, but healing. I will write my law on the new covenant. Write my law where? Hearts and minds. Is it right if you see somebody that you love dying of a terminal condition, if you have a remedy that will actually heal them, is it right to make it available to them? Is that an act of justice or rightness to do? Yes, God's justice is providing Jesus to fix the condition to restore his law in hearts and minds. This is what justice is in God's kingdom, fixing the broken. How about this one? Another This is from Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 5, 38 to 48. It's from the NIV. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go a mile with him, go two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said that uh, it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. If If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, and what more are you doing than others? Do not even pagans do that? 
Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Did you hear justice in these texts? When Jesus said that if someone strikes you, uh, you should turn the other cheek, was this to be taken literally, or is this metaphor? metaphor. Is he saying, uh, so, so it's metaphor. It's not literal, folks. It is, it is design, it, the message is, don't seek vengeance. Don't seek retaliation. Don't seek to harm the other. Don't seek the survival methods of activity where you will destroy those who attack you by using the same methods. This is what he's actually saying. He's actually not saying that this is to be taken literally, and if somebody strikes you in the cheek, you are to literally turn the other cheek. For instance, if a uh, parent has an unruly and rebellious child, and the child in anger strikes the parent, should the parent teach the child it's okay to strike the parent and let him do it again and again? Yes or no? no? No. The loving parent does not merely turn the other cheek and let the violence go on because what happens if you do? But the loving parent will apply this very principle because the loving parent has no desire to destroy the child, to take vengeance upon the child, to harm the child. The loving parent wants to discipline, which means to disciple or teach the child, and will intervene in a way to turn the child away from violence to a path of righteousness. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching here, that you take actions designed in the circumstance and who you're dealing with to help the person who's wronging you understand a larger reality of God's kingdom, to to be redemptive to them to the degree you can. In some circumstances, it might be the thing to do to literally turn the cheek, but this is not to be taken as a rule to be applied across the board in all circumstances. Are you with me? Do we have, now that I've explained that to you and given you an example of parents, do we actually have an example from Jesus? Well, we do. I will read it to you. John 18, 22, and 23. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify to what it was. If I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Did Jesus here simply turn the other cheek? Or did he respond with truth? Of course, in a loving way, I'm sure his voice was compassionate and full of love, but he didn't silently say, here, here's the other cheek. This was a redemptive act to speak truth, to bring conviction to all those present, but also as a model and a demonstration through the generations. Yes? Wouldn't uh, God himself coming to the point of excluding Satan from heaven be an example of not turning the cheek forever. Setting boundaries, yes, exactly. Yes, he set a boundary. Mm-hmm. He didn't inflict an opponent. He didn't seek vengeance. He didn't seek to... to, to uh, if God would have uh, acted the way humans do, sinners do, uh, sin, uh, Satan would have been destroyed Instantly, he has no capacity to stand up against an infinite God on a battle of physical might. God could have crushed him as easy as as as, as you throw a pebble to the ground. It was so easy to crush him if that's what he wanted to do. So, so God's actions were not vengeful; they were redemptive for His entire universe. But yet, healthy boundaries were necessary. Yeah. So Jesus did not turn the other cheek. He used this as an opportunity to demonstrate truth spoken in love. 
as a redemptive opportunity. The law of love seeks to heal and redeem. Thus it is focused on the motives of the heart, not, not legal actions. We are to love our enemies and pray for them who uh, would do us harm. But this does not mean we become doormats and don't hold people accountable. This does not mean because we're loving and praying for our enemies that we let them abuse us and everyone in society. That's not what this means. Love will restrain people. A loving parent will restrain a child who is going into a rant and would destroy or hurt others and themselves. Psychiatrists restrain psychotic patients who would pluck their own eyeballs out or harm somebody else. And society can in love restrain people who have lost such godly self-control that they would exploit and abuse people in society. I want you to understand, and this is because, why does a loving parent restrain a child? If you knew your child was angry and was about to go, we've heard this on the news, you have a 14, 15-year-old child and something happened at school and they got offended, they got humiliated, Somebody, some bully made fun of them on the playground or in the gym, and they're angry, they come home, and you, and you see them getting one of your guns and heading back to school. What would you do with your 15-year-old son in that week? We read about this on the news. This happens occasionally. What would you do if you're a loving parent? You would restrain them, wouldn't you? Now, are you restraining them exclusively or even primarily to protect the innocent people at the school? Is that the primary reason you're restraining your son from going there? Who is the primary person you're trying to protect? Your son. Okay, understand that. If you don't restrain your son, the person you're most concerned with, and ultimately the person who gets hurt the most if he carries out the act, is your son. Somebody else can get hurt physically. But what happens to the soul, the conscience, of the person who would shoot another person in anger and vengeance like this? Sears the conscience, hardens the heart, warps the character, corrupts. Oh, what, what, what? Would you save your son from if you restrain him till he cools down and has time to reflect? Not just the legal consequences of society. Imagine the internal damage that would happen to him. Okay? This is why we restrain. This is why healthy societies do this. Do you understand one of the great lies and counterfeits of Satan percolating through society is this counterfeit of love? This, this counterfeit of, of uh, social, societal, justice, sentimentalism, emotionalism over empathy in which we don't set healthy boundaries, we don't hold people accountable, well, parents uh, are not uh, displaying an unruly child, and so the child grows up to become an unruly adult. And then in society, the various municipalities, the police are defunded, prosecutors don't enforce laws, criminals are let out without bond or bail, uh, just, and they go back out on the street. And what happens? All under the guise of, oh, we must be compassionate to the marginalized and the poor. This is not compassion. This is a way to permanently destroy character. Holding accountability gives opportunity for repentance. No accountability corrupts and society decays and divides and you have more violence and more hostility. But we do it under the umbrella of, of we're going to just be compassionate and love. It's a big lie. 
And that's what you get when you operate under an imposed law structure and you don't understand design law. You don't understand how reality works. You don't understand the bigger picture. So examples of Jesus giving action towards wicked people. Well, any thoughts? Cleansing the temple. Cleansing the temple? Yeah, was he cleansing the people? No, he was teaching a lesson. Okay. So did he take action against people there? I'm wondering. Hmm. Because by attacking the animals... Okay, yeah, he tacked the tables, the furniture. Which affected the people because that was their income. That was how they... Yeah, okay, all right. He disrupted their business. Yes. Okay, I got you now. Now I'm with you. Disrupted their business. That was an act of redemption. Give them time to reflect. Okay? Did it in such a way that the children were not frightened. I'd I'd love to see that in action. I, I can't imagine how in a church meeting somebody could come in and overthrow the tables and drive out the senior leadership and the church and the children not get frightened by that. It's just very, very profound description of what happened there. Jesus contrasted in eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and the sun and the rain. He contrasted God's emergency measures with his eternal designs. The eye for an eye, tooth for tooth was given through Moses to bring societal order, set some boundaries, to prevent blood feuds, to prevent people from simply, oh, uh, your child stole something out of our garden? I'm going to kill him. There was disproportionate blood feuds going on, and this was designed to bring some societal order and structure and put a stop to the blood feuds. This is what it was designed to do. It was never God's ideal it was an emergency measure. So he contrasts that. They held it up because it came as, oh, this is it, this is it, this is ideal, this is perfect society. No, love in the heart. And so he contrasts design law. How does the sun and the rain work? Does it make a differentiation over who's righteous and unrighteous? No, it doesn't. The sun shines equally on all. But the condition of the individual determines the outcome. Some will shade themselves in an umbrella or wear the the head uh, uh, dresses that they had in the Middle East and they still have in the Middle East to to give them shade. Others don't. There's a different outcome. The sun doesn't decide the outcome. The individuals in reaction and and how they deal with the sun decide the outcome. Understand. God's grace, God's love, what he's provided for Jesus is available to all freely, equally. The outcome of our lives is not up to God. Do you understand that? The outcome of every life on earth is up to the person. How they respond to what God has done. This is God's justice, providing everyone the free opportunity to choose life and then leaving people free to reap what they choose. 
Do we have any examples of Jesus dispensing justice? You guys gave the, the temple one. How about the woman caught in adultery? Not just to the woman, but also to the people trying to trap him. What was his justice there? Did he do the right thing, the just thing, by not exposing them? Yes. Yeah. That's how most of our communities work, isn't it? We never hear people trying to expose the worst flaws in others publicly, do we? Even making up things. Well, people would never make up things and try to make people look bad, would they? What justice did Jesus give the man who wanted Jesus to settle the question of his inheritance that he was in conflict with his brother over? You know that story? A man came to Jesus, and he has his father died, and, and he wanted the estate to be settled in a different way, and he asked Jesus to make a ruling. What did Jesus do? Did he make a ruling? He pointed him towards what he really needed was to love his brother. Yes? Um, what about the example of when they came to arrest him and Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword? Yes, so he put away his sword. Was he teaching justice how to do the right thing? Russell? The first thing that came to my mind was his restraint of the use of his power while he was on the cross. <laughs> yeah, I was going to get there, too. How did he treat those who crucified him? Was that justice? Yeah, I mean, it, when, when those are, are clamoring, come down, save yourself and we'll believe you. If he had actually done that, if he had saved himself and, and revealed himself in glory, they, may, they would have believed out of fear if they had survived. So at the cross, we have so much, that whole weekend... How did he treat Pilate and Herod? How did he treat the two thieves? Was, it, was he get, with dispensing justice to the two thieves? How did he treat those who crucified, mocked, and beat him? Did he, did he dispense justice to them? This was an unjust trial. How did he treat Judas? How did he treat Judas? How did he treat Peter? Okay. You see, when you understand design law, if you understand imposed law, though, they were breaking the law to try him the way they did. They brought in perjurers to lie about what he did. They didn't have two people agree in their testimony about what he did. If you understand, if you see this through human law, he, Jesus' response was to go along with a fraud trial. But if you understand design law, he lived out the law of God, truth, presenting the law, leaving free. Not using power to coerce and force. This was the trap. Satan desperately wanted him to use Satan's methods to put a stop to abuse and injustice. The lesson asks us to read Hebrews 2, 14 through 16, which reads, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps with Abraham's descendant. And then in the fourth paragraph, uh, it teaches, it states, this, paragraph, this passage describes us as slaves of the devil, but Jesus as our Redeemer. We, when Adam sinned, human beings fell under the power of Satan. As a result, we did not have the power to resist sin. Worse, there was a death penalty that was, that our transgression required, which we could not pay. 
Thus, our, sal- our situation was apparently hopeless. Do you agree with this lessons interpretation of the Bible passage we just read? No. I, I don't either. Multiple false, false conclusions and false assumptions in the paragraph. But this is what you get when you have the false law model. So let's, let's look at them first. Does Hebrews 2, 14, 15 here uh, say that we're slaves of Satan? Does it say that? We're enslaved, held all our lives enslaved by Satan. Is that what it says? No. No. By our fear of death. Which is the consequence of sin and causes sin. That's what we're enslaved by, the fear of death. This is our carnal drive. Soon Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Fear leads to me first, protect self, survival drives. That's the carnal nature. That's what we're held in slavery of. And that's why Jesus in John 8, 34, I, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Or Romans 6, 6 to 7. For we know that our old self is crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Are we enslaved by Satan or by our own carnal nature's fear of death? If Satan, if you don't, if that's a trick question, if it's too hard, just imagine this scenario. Right now, God uses his power and snaps his fingers, and every demonic agent, Satan and all of his angels, are either wiped out or locked away in some other part of the universe where they can't interact with us on earth. They're gone. They're taken away from this planet. Would sin cease on planet earth at that moment? So would there still be evil happening? So are we slaves to Satan or are we slaves to sin? Carnal nature. This is what we're slaves to. Every person not surrendered to the Holy Spirit, not been reborn with new motives and new drives, will be under the power of fear and selfishness and will act with self-centeredness. That's what enslaves us. But after Adam sinned and the human species was fallen, God did not abandon human beings to the control of Satan. It says right in Genesis, right there, that God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God began intervening in the hearts and minds of of humanity, human beings, to prevent us from being mindless slaves of Satan to give us a desire for something better, to give us the freedom to choose. Ellen White describes it this way in Signs of the Times, July 11, 1895. The Lord says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. The enmity does not exist as a natural fact. As soon as Adam sinned, he was in harmony with the first great apostate and at war with God. And if God had not interfered in man's behalf, Satan and man would have formed a confederacy against heaven and carried out a united opposition against the God of hosts. There is no natural enmity between evil angels and evil men. Both are evil through transgression of the law of God, and evil will always league against good. Fallen men and fallen angels enter into a desperate companionship because they're both corrupted. If they're not renewed by the Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is not intervening to draw, to woo, to convict, 
our natural sin inclination is to be like Satan. Me first, selfishness. James tells us in James chapter 1, no one should say God is tempting because God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one of us is tempted when he's dragged away and enticed by own evil desires. We all have this nature that without the intervention of the Holy Spirit leads us away. So, but let me say this clearly too, because the root problem is not Satan that we're enslaved to. The root problem is the carnal nature, fear, selfishness that we're enslaved to, but Satan is a real being, and we could become enslaved because he's a real being of selfishness, the father of lies, who works against all that is good. And so it is possible for us to surrender our minds to him, to embrace his methods, to open ourselves to him, to invite him into our lives, and to put ourselves under his control and become a slave. That's possible, but that that is not the primary problem for the whole species together. Those are individuals, and you see demoniacs that became enslaved, their minds became enslaved, and of course Jesus set them free, but that is a possibility. But that's not the circumstance for the whole human race. What is required then if we understand that we're slaves to our fear of death or slaves to sin, as the Bible says, what's necessary then to free us? Is it that we're under a legal penalty? There's a death penalty is the paragraph. There's a death penalty and we are on death row and we're waiting for the divine judge to inflict the penalty. And so we're kind of imprisoned in a legal construct, a legal prison waiting death sentence to be carried out. Is that it? No, you have to remove the sin. You have to remove the thing that's infecting you. You have to heal. Yes, that's exactly right. Does the, does the passage in Hebrews actually say there's a death penalty? The Bible teaches the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap destruction. So you can, you can if you understand it correctly, you can say um, there is a penalty from jumping off the Empire State Building. That's true. There is. There's a penalty for doing that. And it, and it is meted out when they hit the bottom. What's that old, what's that old joke? It, 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 the jump doesn't hurt. The jump doesn't hurt. It's that sudden stop. <laughs> yeah, right. The jump doesn't hurt. The sudden stop does. That's right. Uh, and, and, so, and so there is a penalty. But God doesn't send angels to break legs of people when they hit the bottom. It's not inflicted. It's the result. Okay? So where did this idea come from that sin requires the infliction of punishment? Well, you know this quote. Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, where did the great controversy open? Heaven or earth? In heaven. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared... What is a declaration? Is that evidence? Is that fact? A declaration is fact? It's evidence? It's a statement. It's a polemic. It's words. Satan is the father of? Yes. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. 
This is Satan's position from the beginning. The idea of sin must be punished. He's the originator of this entire penal, substitutionary, inflicted, justice requires inflicted punishment construct. Somebody say something? Yeah? No? If Satan were correct about God's law, then he would be correct about the assertion. If God's law were like human law, then it would require punishment. But God's law is not like human law. Four paragraphs later, the same author, Book Desire of Ages, now page 762, tells you what God's law requires. Satan says God's law requires punishment. That's what you get from an imposed law. But if you understand design law, you've already said it in here several times, design law requires healing, right? The removal of the problem, fixing the brokenness. Notice what this author author says, and this is one of my favorite paragraphs. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And, and again, why does the law require that? For the same reason the law of respiration requires you breathe. It's the basis on how life is built. Without this, you're out of harmony with life. You will die. This is why it's no arbitrary thing. It's, it's life. It's how it works. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as a man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Yes, he is the new head of humanity. He stands in the place of our species that Adam was created to stand in. He is the second Adam. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through, this is quite profound, through a penalty being paid to the law or to the legal authorities of heaven. No. Through the forbearance of God. Through the forbearance of God. That's exactly right. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. Imbues men with the attributes of God. What does that sound like is happening? Heart transformation, writing the law on the heart and mind, partaking of the divine nature, no longer I that live but Christ lives in me, recreation, rebuilding up the human character for the similitude of the divine. So what it goes on to say, he builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer. God can be just, there it is, doing the right thing, providing the remedy. The justifier fixing them, making them right again of him who believes in Jesus. It is absolutely right for the person that loves to take the action to save somebody who's dying, the just thing. It's also absolutely right to take the one who's dying and restore them to health and wellness, justifying or putting them right again. He is just for doing it, and he is the justifier or healer, restorer of those who are sick and sin. That's what it's saying. It's beautiful. There's nothing penal legal going on at all. All the penal legal stuff, I'm telling you, the entire penal substitutionary theology is predicated on believing Satan's lie about God's law. So God does not have to inflict a death or legal payment or punishment upon anyone. That's Satan's language of things. It is true that the wage of sin is death, but, but death doesn't come out from God. It comes out from being out of harmony with the very protocols of life or the channels of blessings that come from God. In Gethsemane and at the cross, the two antagonistic principles, greater love is no man that he gives life for a friend, God's law of love, 
versus fear and selfishness. Me first. Save yourself. Save yourself. Warded out, both the antagonistic principles warded out in the humanity, the mind, brain, individuality of Jesus. He was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And he overcame as a human using human abilities, not divine abilities. Get your mind around that. Remember, I just read in James, divinity cannot be tempted. He was tempted and his humanity went through this. He went through this as a human. Now, he had one additional temptation that all of us don't have. And that was he had the temptation to at any moment access divine powers. But he didn't. He could have. He was fully God. But he won the victory using only his human powers. Powers that are available to us. Yes. Yeah, I forget what the quote is. Ellen White says, when the will of God is united with the will of man, it becomes omnipotent. There you go. Which is totally amazing. Uh, Monday's lesson, first paragraph says, Hebrews says that Jesus was not ashamed to call us brethren. Despite being one with God, Jesus embraced us as part of his family. This solidarity contrasts, this solidarity contrasts with the public shaming that the reader of Hebrews suffered uh, in their communities. And the lesson goes on to describe in the early church, some of them were struggling with insecurities, embarrassment. They didn't want to be identified as Christian because they were being mocked and, and maybe even persecuted, made fun of. Um, and so there's an object, there's a lesson here. You know, how do we handle today being an object of scorn in our communities for standing up or identifying ourselves as Christian? You remember the story of Elijah? Did he at one time feel like he was the only one? And God said, there's 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee, remember? That was encouraging to know he wasn't the last. There were 7,000 more. But think that through. Okay, God has just confirmed there's 7,000 and one because of Elijah. In Israel, they haven't bowed the knee. How many people do you think were in Israel? About 14,000? Hundreds of thousands? A million? In other words, we don't know the exact number, but the 7,001 majority or tiny minority? Tiny minority. But wait, were they really? Do you remember a short time later, Elisha, Elijah's gone, Elisha's taken over. There's an enemy coming to attack. Elisha, in 2 Kings 6.16, says to his servant, don't be afraid. Those who are, are with us are more than those who are with them. Because we had suddenly 500,000 Israelites coming out to stand by them. That's why we had more on our side? The angels came down. Okay, so this is important what I'm trying to teach you here. In this world, you may find yourself surrounded by human forces like Jesus, like the apostles, like Elijah and the 7,000, where if you look at this only in the lens of earthly things, you, you might be in the minority. But you must remember, we're in this world, but not of this world. If you include the entire universe that God governs, we're in the majority 
Only one-third of the angels, there's two-thirds of the angels and all the sinless inhabited worlds out there that are on our side. Only here does it sometimes, when we lose that perspective, feel like we're in the minority. You can always remember, if you're on God's side, you're in the majority in this universe. So don't be discouraged. I just want to give that, that point. Tuesday's lesson. Third and fourth paragraph. Hebrews also says, however, that Jesus was different from us regarding sin. First, Jesus did not commit any sin. Second, Jesus had a human nature that was holy, innocent, uh, unstained, separated from sinners. Uh, we, we all have sinned and we all have evil tendencies. Our bondage to sin begins deep inside our own very nature. We are carnal and sold under sin. Pride and other sinful motivations often taint even our good actions. Jesus' nature, however, was not marred by sin. It had to, it had to be this way. If Jesus had been carnal, sold under sin like us, he would have it needed a savior. Instead, Jesus came as a savior and offered himself as a sacrifice without blemish to God for us. Next words, then Jesus destroyed the power of the devil by dying as the sinless offering for our sins, thus making possible our forgiveness and reconciliation with God. So what do you think about this idea? Jesus came as a quote, Jesus came as our savior and offered himself as a sacrifice without blemish to God for us. And then the very next words of the lesson Then Jesus destroyed the power of the devil by dying as a sinless offering for our sins, thus making possible our forgiveness and reconciliation to God. Putting those two thoughts together, since they run consecutively sentence to sentence, what's being taught? Jesus died and presents a sacrifice to the Father in order to break Satan's power and make it possible for God to to forgive us. Are they saying that Satan has power over God? That's what it says. This is what you get with the false law model. It's quite, it's contradictory. It's not true. Paganism. It is paganism. You're exactly right. Satan wished he had this kind of power. Satan fantasizes about this kind of power. And he loves it when people preach that he has this kind of power and teach it. It's all misconstrued again on the false law model. Go back to design law, clarifies this immediately. Law is a standard of health, righteousness, life. God is working to restore it in us. And Jesus came in order to destroy the infection of fear and selfishness, restore God's law in hearts and minds. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, did not have a legal problem. They had a lethal problem. They were not faithful, loyal, true, good-hearted people who would self-sacrifice others, uh, self-sacrifice themselves for others that were simply in legal trouble. They were actually had hearts and minds that were in, uh, at enmity with God now, as the Bible says. They had a carnal heart. The solution to salvation requires our condition be changed back to love and trust and have fear and selfishness removed. From the sinner's side of this divide... This divide after sin, what's required for a sinner to be saved or healed, what's required from the sinner side? Trust in God. Trust has to be restored. Without trust, we cannot be saved. Or another word for trust is faith. And I encourage you to read my blog for this week, Faith in the End Times. That you'll find it helpful. But without trust, we don't open the heart. If we don't trust God, we don't open the heart. We don't open the mind. We don't allow God to come in and 
heal, train, change, give us new motives, lead us in a way that we willingly cooperate and choose what he has convicted us of. We don't do it. And if we don't do it, if God were to use power to bring a change about in someone's heart and mind without their willing, cooperative consent and choice, he erases their individuality. They either become a a, a mindless robot or there's a new individual in their place. And God would then also be kind of being Satan says he is, just an arbitrary power monger who forces people to do what he says. So, So it requires our trust. It requires our faith. God will never... Violate. If you want to be arbitrary about anything, you want to be dogmatic. We're not dogmatic about, but you want to be dogmatic about something? Be dogmatic about God will never take away our freedom. Because love can't exist without him. He won't make us robots. He won't force us. Truth, love, freedom. That's his method. Our healing requires our active, willing participation. From our side. That's all it's required. Our trust from our side. He'll do the rest if we trust and obey. Trust and follow. Trust and apply. Trust and choose. That's it. But from his side, more was required. From his side, from the divine side, simply restoring us to trust wasn't sufficient. More had to be done. If we saw, Now, he cer- certainly had to reveal truth, not just to us, but that truth was also important for the loyal angels to solidify them in their loyalty and stop the spread of disaffection throughout the universe, to stop the lies from spreading. So that revelatory aspect was always part of the truth was that you are as part of Jesus' mission. But if you stop there, if you stop where he only came to reveal truth to win us to trust, and that's all he had to do, you're teaching what's called moral influence theory. He did something to influence us morally, to influence us back. That was part of the mission. It's required, not sufficient. Didn't he have to form a new character so that he could give it to us because our character was flawed? Well, well said. You can use the term remedy. You're dying of a terminal condition and you have a loving physician father who you trust completely, but he has no, no cure for your condition. Does your trust get you well? I trust you. You have uh, a terminal condition and there's a doctor who you absolutely don't trust because he, you know he's a doctor, doctor death. He's already been convicted of murdering multiple people. M- maybe you're Jewish and he's Dr. Mengele in World War II. Okay. But your condition he actually has a cure for. Would you let him give it to you? Yeah. If you don't trust him. No, I'm not taking anything from you. I don't trust you. So trust isn't necessary, but with, because without trust, we don't open ourselves up for him working in our hearts and minds. But once we trust him, he has to have a remedy that cures us. And this is what Christ came to achieve. What we read in the Desire of Ages quote. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This we don't have to give. Christ came in the form of and developed a perfect character. This he offers a free gift to all who accept him. This is what's necessary. And this is the objective achievement of what Christ did as a human being that we could never do. He became the second Adam, taking humanity broken and damaged in sin and perfecting it and carrying humanity back into sinless perfection by the exercise of human abilities. And what he did, if you want some, um, some Bible text for all this, Colossians 1, 19 and 20, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So here's the revelatory aspect, truth solidifying or winning the loyalty of all the unfallen beings by dispelling the lies and the confusion Satan is told at the cross. That's, that's the revelatory aspect.
Um, the Hebrews 2.14 aspect, uh, that he destroyed Satan and Satan's power. And Satan's power, if you remember, life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God. So if eternal life is knowing God, eternal death is not knowing God. So his power is the lies that he tells about God that keep us from knowing him. So again, this is the revealing the truth, exposing the, the liar. And then 2 Timothy 1.10, Christ who destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Destroyed death. What's the basis of life? Unity or knowledge or oneness with God. He's the source of life. Source of death is separation from God, which believing the lies and preferring selfishness cause. So destroying death is destroying the lies and the fear and selfishness that separate us from God. And 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What has the devil been working to do? He faced the image of God in human beings. We were designed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit where God dwells and we reveal godly character. We reveal his living law in the way we carry out and conduct ourselves. He wants to erase that and put his law, his character, in the human species. Christ destroyed the devil's work by restoring perfectly the law of God in humanity. And in doing so, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving or bringing life to the soul. The, the law of God is the law of life. Life is based on it. Once Christ perfectly lived out and achieved his goal of developing a, a sinless human character, writing the law of love or the law of life back into the humanity he assumed, and at the cross eradicated all aspects of the infection of fear and selfishness that tempted, because he was tempted like us, it was inevitable that he rose. That's why he could predict. He told over and over again, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise on the third day. I'm going to go die, I'm going to rise on the third day. I'm going to go die, I'm going to rise on the third day. He knew what his mission was. I've got to go kill this infection, restore the principles of life into the humanity that I've taken upon myself, and I'm going to rise again. This is a prediction. It was a prediction not of a prophetic vision through time. He didn't see through time. It was a prediction of understanding law. We can predict what will happen if I let go of this pen. It's a future event. It's not a prophetic gift. We predict because we understand the law of gravity. And we can predict confidently. Ellen White, if you read in Zarvages uh, and other places, she describes that Christ could not see through the portals of the tomb. He did not have a vision through time to see what was happening on the other side of time. He had a knowledge of what the law would do, perfectly restored into his humanity and eliminating all the elements that Adam put in that caused death. And that's why he rose again. It was an inevitable outcome. And then Wednesday's lesson, we'll turn to it very quickly. I think we can, is this what I want to close with? Uh, Wednesday's lesson, third paragraph, says, Jesus was perfected through suffering in order to become the captain of our salvation. Jesus had to die on the cross as a sacrifice so that the Father could have a legal means to save us. Hebrews 5, 9. Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. It's a great text when you understand design law. Bible perfection is not about sinlessness. Jesus was always sinless from the moment of his birth. But Bible perfection is about maturity of character. Character cannot be created. God cannot create beings with character. 
Adam and Eve had to develop their character by their choices. That's why the tree was put there, to give them an opportunity to decide what character would they develop. Would they, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, would they choose to know in their character fear and selfishness evil, or would they choose loyalty and know love and fidelity and integrity and faithfulness? What would they know in their being? What character would they develop? They had the power in their own strength in Eden to develop a holy, righteous character. We don't have that power in our own strength. Jesus came to do that for us. And thus, once he was made perfect, once he grew in wisdom and stature, once he was tempted in all points like we are, once he went through the cross and eradicated all the elements that tempt and solidified a perfect, sinless human character, he was perfect. Other humans have achieved this level of, through God's grace, not, not working it out themselves, they received it as a gift from God through history. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. It says this is what the final generation will be when Christ comes. They were loyal. They were faithful. Their character was so mature, they were, they were sealed. And what's the sealing described as? Settling into the truth. Settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that you cannot be moved. Job, perfect and righteous in all his ways, no one on the earth like him. And look at the tribulation he went through, and he didn't have all the answers. There were questions he didn't comprehend, but he knew God and could not be shaken from his loyalty and fidelity to the Father. This is what it means to be perfect, to be perfectly settled into our loyalty and fidelity. And that is a gift that we receive as we come back into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, we, well, we're out of time. I'm going to go ahead and close the prayer and we'll do our Q&A. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for all that you've achieved through Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for taking up our humanity. Thank you for going through the trials that we could have never endured. Thank you for suffering, but also for overcoming. Thank you also for sending the Holy Spirit which you've promised, which will take all that is yours and make it known to us. And so we ask for your spirit to reproduce in us your loving character that we can be your agents and your witness and seal us, settle us into the truth that nothing can shake us from it. We pray in your holy name. Amen.